Jeremiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 1, it says, The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, Woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighting, and I find no rest. Thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I will break down. And what I have planted, I will pluck up. That is, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places, wherever you go. We're ending the book of Jeremiah very soon in our study. For those of you who have been following along, you'll remember that Jeremiah isn't written in a chronological order. And we tend to think in a chronological order where a movie has a beginning. It has a middle and it has it has an end. And if you come in on the middle of the movie, you're frustrated because you want to know how it started. And Jeremiah doesn't necessarily follow a chronological order. Chapter 45 takes place. After the events of chapter 36, and for those of you who are unfamiliar or don't remember what was in chapter 36, that was the passage of scripture where Jehoiakim burns Jeremiah's scroll. Basically, he takes his lifelong ministry, he lights it on fire and he throws it in the fireplace. Chapter 45 will serve as an introduction to the prophecies of the nations. And so even though chapter 36, even though chapter 45 takes place after chapter 36, there really is a rhyme and a reason to the compilation of this book. Chapter 45 serves as an introduction, like I said, to the prophecies to the nations. It will also give us just this tiniest peek into the life and ministry of a faithful servant the steward, the secretary, the assistant, if you will, to Jeremiah. His name was Baruch, the son of Neriah. And so when Jeremiah would receive a message from God or a prophecy from God, it was Baruch's responsibility to write it down. And in this passage, Baruch is troubled and depressed, in part because of the persistent rebellion of the people and the failure of his hopes to come to fruition. If you have a ministry, then you hope that this ministry is going to express itself in fruitfulness. When you talk to people about Jesus, you expect people to accept Jesus. And sometimes you're shocked and even dismayed when you talk to people about God and about God's love and about the resurrection of Jesus. And people look at you and they think you're nuts. And then after a while, you get discouraged and frustrated. 
Now Jeremiah is going to bring a word of hope and comfort to Baruch. And part of the hope and the comfort is going to include a message. And the message is don't place your confidence and hope in this world and what the world has to offer. The the world's recognition, the world's position, the world's honor, the world's acceptance, the world's peace, the world's security, the world's prosperity, the world's wealth. We tend to define problems in terms of things where we can solve that problem. If the problem is poverty, then all you need is more money. If the problem is security, then you need stability or insecurity. If, if the problem is a, a lack of peace, then you want to create a world in which there is peace. But we are reminded that this world has only a temporary hope and a momentary joy. But nothing in this world, in the end, can offer permanent peace and permanent hope. Because we know that permanent peace and permanent hope is only found in the provision that God has made for us in Christ. No wonder the Lord tells us not to place our confidence and hope in this world, because in the end, here's what we know, even though we only hint at it, that one day God will destroy this world. He will uproot it. And God was bringing judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. You'll remember because they rejected the Lord. They cursed his name. They embraced wickedness with abandonment and enthusiasm. These people weren't just sinners. These were enthusiasts. Enthusiastic sinners. They weren't just rebels. They were enthusiastic rebels. And so it begins with Baruch's complaint. Look at verse one. It says the word that Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. These are the prophecies that Baruch had transcribed at the instruction of Jeremiah. Remember, now we're going back in time. The year is 605 B.C. This is the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. If we go back in time again, this is the time before Jerusalem fell, when Jeremiah is prophesying. These are the events that take place, like I said, after Chapter 36 in Jeremiah, chapter 25. Remember, Jeremiah had hinted at the plans that God had for the nations and most of the nations that will be mentioned later on in the book of Jeremiah from chapter 46 all the way through chapter 51 are reiterated again. And God gives a message, prophecies concerning his plans and his purposes of the unfolding of the future for the nations. And in verse two, it says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel to you, O Baruch. Now, this is amazing. Because this is a personal message. In the past, it had been to kings and leaders and to the nation. But here there is a specific word, a specific word from God for Baruch. And this should give you a sense of hope. In the reality that God thinks about you every moment of every day, he knows your name, he knows your circumstances, he knows your life. And remember that Baruch was not the only son of Neriah. He apparently had a relative who was fairly famous, 
fairly powerful, influential. He had a brother who was in the king's court. It would be like if you had a brother or a sister who worked for the president of the United States. Your brother, your sister was the chief of staff or your brother or your sister was in the innermost cabinet of the of the echelons of power. It's not a major stretch of the imagination to speculate that Baruch might have had a very different life, a very affluent life in the service to the court of Judah. But for whatever reason, God set him apart and gave him a specific job. He was going to serve Jeremiah throughout his ministry. And maybe you might have had a different life had you made a different decision. And then verse 3 it says, Woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighting and I find no rest. Remember, Baruch is copying the words of Jeremiah. Baruch responds, Woe is me now. Why? Because the king has rejected the warning in the word of the Lord. Remember, when the king took the scroll of Jeremiah and threw it in the fireplace. He not only destroyed the work of Jeremiah, but he destroyed the work of Baruch, who was the faithful scribe. It would be like if you went to this church and you were a part and a parcel of building this church, of putting on the roof, of installing it or 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 painting the walls or cleaning the carpets or just being a part of, of all that's going on around here. And all of a sudden someone comes and they throw a bottle of gasoline and they light it on fire. And all of a sudden you watch the church burn and it begins to go up right before your eyes. And so he's in despair. Woe is me now. Why? The king has rejected the warnings and the word of, of the Lord. Sorrow. The sorrow is for the sins of his people. Grief. The grief is for the judgment that now must come. He's in a crisis. And you know what the crisis is? It's a crisis of ministry. And the reason why the crisis of ministry is because he's finding out something that sometimes ministry is really hard. Sometimes when you devote your life to someone or service to someone, you take them to church or you hold Bible studies with them, you work with them, you love them, you cry with them, you minister to them, you take their phone calls in the middle of the night, you love, you serve, you love, you serve, and all of a sudden they disappear. It doesn't matter how much time, how much effort, how much love, how much prayer, how much devotion that you've invested in their life. We're left with the impression that the demands of ministry had become so profound. Baruch is distressed and he's discouraged. Now, again, we're not given the total details of what has caused the crisis, but I'm going to suggest to you any number of things. It may have been the persecution that Jeremiah experienced in chapter 26. It became overwhelming. The guy that you're working for is always in jail. He's always in custody. He's always in trouble. Can you imagine working for someone? They go, where's your boss? And he's in jail. And why is he in jail? You know, the whole God thing, the religious thing. He's in jail. 
It, Warren Wiersbe speculates that Baruch may have even contemplated leaving the ministry, maybe looking for a, a little bit better job in the king's court. But we know something else, that religion is difficult and the ministry is difficult. But do you think politics is easy? I don't think so. If the current political cycle is any indication of how people can be chewed up and spit out. It seems to me that politics might be a high risk occupation as well. The source of the depression and the source of the distress may have been what I alluded to earlier. Seeing the king Jehoiakim burn the scroll and watching your ministry go up in smoke. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, a soft job in the government would only lead to death or exile in Babylon. Then God gave him a word of assurance. His life would be spared so he didn't have to fear the enemy. He goes on, he says, a crisis doesn't make a person. A crisis reveals what a person is made of. The crisis that follows the destruction of Jerusalem was like a goldsmith's furnace that revealed the dross as well as the pure gold. He writes, it's too bad there wasn't very much gold there. Part of the point that the Lord is making, even though he's having this crisis of faith and this crisis of ministry, it's if you go where you think you might want to go. If you want to stay in Jerusalem, guess what? Jerusalem is slated for destruction. If you want to be in the king's court, then the chances are you're going to be taken away captive. What about the person who says, I don't want to be in the ministry and I don't want to serve God and I don't want to go to the Sunday school and I don't want to do any of those things. Well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to go back out in the world. I want to have fun and I want to have party and I want to live a life that's um, interesting. What do you mean? You know, not boring. What do you mean? Well, you know, where I can satisfy myself. What do you mean? You know, where I can satisfy my needs. What do you mean? You mean the temporal, physical, emotional kinds of things that you think that you need in order to survive. What crisis is in your life? For some of you, it might be the death of a loved one. It might be the loss of a job. It might be being underemployed. It might be a difficult marriage. It seems to me that when Wearsby wrote, a crisis doesn't make a person. A crisis reveals what a person is made of. At that moment of death, at that moment of the loss of a job, at that moment of crisis, at that moment of insecurity and difficulty, what are you going to do? How are you going to live your life? You know, we can often measure a person by observing what it takes to discourage them. One of the great ironies of being human is that great men and women never feel great. And small men and women never feel small. Greatness isn't something that usually is felt and neither is insignificance. But Baruch is wondering whether or not he's wasted his life, whether he's wasted the resources, whether he made the right decision about ministry. And so the Lord says to him, 
In verse 4, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I will break down. And what I have planted, I will pluck up. That is this whole land. Do you understand that in a single sentence, the Lord describes the nature and the extent of the judgment that will come upon the land? In other words, what he's reminding Baruch is you didn't waste your life and you didn't waste your ministry and you didn't waste your resources because everything that I've been telling Jeremiah all along is still true. The judgment is going to come. The difficulty is going to come. The rebellion and the resistance and the disobedience is going to result in some really big difficulties. And the truth is, because you've loved God and honored God and obeyed God and followed God, it's going to go well for you. And you see, you sometimes might be thinking, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was it worth it to pray a prayer and receive Christ into my life? Was it worth it to open up my Bible? Was it worth it to study the Bible? Was it worth it to love and pray and devote myself to my husband, my wife, my children, my grandchildren? Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Did, did the way that I, I lived my life for the Lord, is it going to make a difference? Is it, is it going to really matter? Is it is it going to really matter that I continue to pray and continue to serve and continue to tell people about Jesus? Remind them that the world is going to come to a crashing halt and that you're going to spend somewhere in eternity. It's never going to be more real and it's never going to be more important than in the day when people put you in the ground. When your family gathers together and they begin an assessment of what your life was like and what it was all about. But even more important than their opinion is the opinion of the person who says. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Or. Depart from me. I never knew who you were. And look at the message, the interesting message, the specific message that the Lord gives to Baruch. He says, and do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. I know what you're thinking. He's at the last verse and it's 745 jackpot. Close. I've only got a few more things that I want to say. When he says, do you seek great things for yourself? The word of encouragement gives way to a word of warning. The Lord says to Baruch, don't have personal ambitions when God's plan includes judgment. He says, do you seek great things for yourself? The Lord offers a special promise, the preservation of his life. Now think about this. Jeremiah's ministry hasn't been a bed of roses. His ministry hasn't been free from problems. If anything, if Jeremiah has taught us anything, the life of the servant of God isn't always full of ease and comfort. The Lord says, Do you seek great things for yourself? 
Do not seek them. The word is reminiscent of what God said to Ebed Melech, who was kind to Jeremiah. But I will give you your life as a prize in all of the places. He'd said in chapter 39, verses 16 through 18. The Lord promised Baruch, okay, guess what? You're going to survive. You're going to physically survive through the dark day, through the horrible day, through the wicked day, through the difficult day of judgment. Baruch was offered the gift of life. He would be saved from the coming judgment. Why? Because he was faithful to the Lord. One of the great promises of God to his children is the gift of life in Christ. Our hope is not a temporal hope. It's an eternal hope. In John 3.15 it says, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Baruch is offered physical life through a difficult circumstance. You're offered something way more important. Eternal life. Through the circumstances that are not only taking place in the here and now, but the later. In John 3, 3.16, or 3.36, it says, He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides, that means dwells or lives on him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, John writes, And this is the promise that he has promised us. Eternal life. John 17, 3. Jesus is speaking and he says, Father. He says, well, I'm going to turn there so I don't misquote it. In John 17, 3, he says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've said, sent repeatedly, repeatedly throughout the New Testament is this reoccurring promise. Life, eternal life, life, eternal life. You'll never realize just how important that is until you bury someone that you love. I was reading about a friend who was talking about burying his mother and he said that was hard and burying his father and he said that it was hard and he said um, burying uh, his friend and that was hard he said but burying burying his daughter that was harder than all of them than all of them the only thing that can ease the pain and alleviate the suffering is the deep conviction that this person survives death and that you will see them again. And so when he says in verse five, look at it again and do not seek great things. Why? Why not seek great things? Because the great things of this world are destined for destruction. Why not want to be important? Why not want to be rich? Why not want to be influential? But he says to Baruch, do you want really great things for yourself? Don't seek them because they're destined for destruction. Andrew Blackwood writes with stunning insight, quote, the heart of the oracle, however, is not what it says about Baruch. But what it says about God. Well, what does the oracle say about God? I will bring adversity on all flesh. 
What does it say about God? What kind of a God is God? The Bible speaks of the fact of judgment in both the Old and the New Testament. The Bible speaks of the testimony of our conscience and the testimony of Christ's resurrection. The Bible speaks of a judge, Jesus. The Bible speaks of the judgment of a cross and the daily judgment in our lives and a judgment in the future of saints A judgment of the living nations, a judgment at a great white throne, a judgment of fallen angels, a judgment of Israel. Paul, the apostle, in his famous speech on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, said, Because he, that is God, has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus, that the proof that was possible and positive is that everything that the New Testament says about God and about Jesus and about the future is true. Someone has said faults are thick where love is thin. But God's love is thick. Even when our faults are thick. Faults are thick where love is thin. But what do you do when you have a lot of faults and the need for a great deal of love? So what kind of a God is God? Well, God's love is perfect over and over. We're told of God's deep mercy. We're told of his compassion for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. The Lord mourns over the wicked behavior of his people. And and see, here's what it's saying. That God isn't some aloof spectator of his people's trials and trauma and difficulty. God isn't a person in heaven who's scratching his head and who sees your difficulty and sees your trial and And sees the trauma and sees the crisis and sees the pain and says, I don't really care. I've just got this other thing going on. And once I'm able to accomplish this other thing, then then I'll address your issue. No, the Lord cares. Again, Blackwood writes, quote, love knows grief when a loved one is in pain. If Ephraim, that is. Judah in Jerusalem is indeed the Lord's darling child. Remember, that's how Jeremiah describes them in Jeremiah 31, 20. Then it follows that the father will sorrow when his efforts to chasten and restore the children fail. Jeremiah 31, 18. The eye of the prophet sometimes becomes shades of the eye of God. Jeremiah, Ephraim, the Lord himself say, I mourn, I dismay. And and so here's part of the point. Blackwood goes on to draw a parallel between the anguish of God in chapter 45 and the Lord's self-revelation of himself in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, you'll remember the story of how Jonah leaves to, to go talk to the people of Nineveh. He tries to run away from his calling. He goes back to Nineveh. He tells them the truth that they're going to be punished, that they're going to be judged. But there's a repentance that takes place and the entire city repents and turns to God in the most amazing and unlikely revival in the history of humanity. And Jonah's devastated. He's devastated not that the people are judged, but that they're saved. 
He weeps. He cries. Oh, God, I knew you were. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were merciful. I, I knew you were full of pity. And in Jonah chapter four, verse 10, it says this. Because during his pity party, a plant sprouted up. And then the heat of the day killed the plant. And Jonah feels sorry for the plant. Oh God, why did you have to kill that poor innocent plant? The plant never did anything to anyone. And in Jonah 4.10 it says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. And should I not pity Nineveh? The Hebrew verb is strong in the English Stronger than the, the English pity. The, the word means to grieve over. It's the kind of grief that you experience for a mother, a father, a son, or a daughter, a loved one when you have to bury them. The terse argument in Jonah requires the reader to supply the, this concluding thought. You are grieved over the plant which cost you nothing. Should I not be grieved over Nineveh which I created and over which I have watched with care for all of these centuries? Here's part of the point. What kind of a God is God? Does God care about our suffering? Does he care about the pain? Does he care about the sorrow? Does he care that the judgment has to take place on Jerusalem and Judah, does he really care? Now, now think about what we've learned in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, we witnessed a God who shapes his people like clay. He's more than a good shepherd taking care of sheep that are different from himself. Jeremiah speaks of God's eternal purposes. In Jeremiah 31, 3, it says, I have loved you. I have loved you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So what kind of a God is God? Blackwood points out that if God is faithful, he must also be just. And if God cannot be faithful to his own character and his own nature and provide ease and comfort for Judah and Jerusalem with no regard to Judah and Jerusalem's behavior. Here's part of the point. God wants to find a a way for people to experience his grace and his mercy. And his compassion. In Jeremiah 2.19 we read, Your wickedness will chasten you. We could translate that, The evil that you've endured should teach you. In other words, the book of Jeremiah describes a God who says, Has anything bad ever happened to you? And what did you learn? What, what did you learn? What did you learn from the difficulty? God is loving. God is holy. God is good. God is jealous. God is merciful. God is sovereign. That means he has authority. God is omnipotent. He has all power. God is omniscient. That means he knows everything about everything. God is patient. God is faithful. But what can the Lord do? What happens when repeated discipline yields no change? There's one thing he cannot do. He can't smash the pot and he can't burn the plant and he can't uproot and destroy 
without a cost. And now we see something in the text that we didn't see before. It's not Baruch who should be offended. Because the person who is lost, the person who has the most to lose in this situation, is the Lord himself. And this is the heart of this message in this tiny, tiny chapter 45. This the heart of the message. The Lord, in effect, is saying, Baruch. Baruch. What is your grief compared to mine? What is your disappointment compared to mine? How is it that you're so depressed and discouraged and disappointed because you feel like you don't have a fruitful ministry, like you've wasted your life, like you wasted the relationship, like you've wasted your ministry, like you've devoted your life to this or that, and you're not seeing the fullness of the fruit come forward. This is the heart of, of the oracle. Baruch, what is your grief when you stop and you think about the sorrow and the grief because the judgment is coming on Jerusalem and Judah and you're upset and Guess what? You're upset because you're watching a world die and go to hell apart from Jesus Christ. And you're a little bit disturbed by that. You're a little bit shook up by that. But guess how God feels about it? Because God sent his son Jesus into the world. God created a mechanism and he orchestrated all of human history so that a real Jesus could come and live the perfect life that you couldn't live and die on the cross that you deserve and then rise from the dead so that you could experience wholeness and wellness and faith and encouragement and life and love. And that's, that's the rub. What is our grief compared to God's? What is our concern compared to God's? And we might look at the, at the passage that the Lord says, well, Baruch, guess what? You're going to live through this. Baruch, you're going to survive this. Isn't that good news? But it's way more than that. The servant of the Lord, Baruch, is discouraged. So God offers him a word of encouragement. The Lord cautions Baruch not to build his hopes and his dreams and his aspirations of the future of Judah and Jerusalem, but rather because it's going to all be destroyed in the siege of Babylon, that probably the best possible place that you could place your confidence and trust is in what God's plans and purposes are. And so it is with us. So it is with each and every one of us. Because the moment that you're discouraged and the moment that you're disappointed and the moment that you're depressed and you're preoccupied with what this world has to offer you because you're building your hopes, you're building your dreams, you're building your aspirations, you're building your futures on a so-called success that the world provides and the world defines. But the world is going to perish. It's going to pass away. 
We have enemies who would love to see our nation perish. We have enemies who hate us and resent the United States of America. They resent our wealth and they resent the power and they resent the influence of our great nation. But a nation that rejects God and God's justice has some real difficulties that it's going to have to come to face with. Think about this. This is written... 600 B.C. Fast forward 600 years, add a couple of decades. Hear Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying what the Lord was saying to Baruch. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What is it that you want? What, do you want peace? Do you want security? Do you want forgiveness? Do you want hope? Do you want a meaningful life? And so the Lord says, don't seek great things for yourself. Seek the Lord. We are promised tribulation. We are promised fiery trials. We are given the opportunity to come forth like gold that's been tested in the furnace of affliction. You know, we've learned a lot of lessons in this book of Jeremiah. How to be bold before people, but broken before God. We've been introduced to some of the secrets of overcoming discouragement in ministry. And in the next few chapters, we're going to add some principles of how God will deal with the nations. What it takes to be to become like Jesus. But there's also something else. It's pretty exciting. The Lord will lift the veil and give you a prophetic look, just like the whole book of Jeremiah has been talking about. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then it does happen. Now, the Lord is going to cast his vision out on the world. And from Judah and Jerusalem's perspective, he's going to look south and he's going to look north and he's going to look east and he's going to look west and begin to show us what what awaits in the future for the nations of the world the last division of the book of jeremiah that's chapters 46 through 52 will contain a collection of prophecies given by god to jeremiah throughout the course of his ministry but remember now the audience has changed and because the audience has changed so has the prophetic insight and survey Remember, 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 if you were here at the very beginning of our Bible study, Jeremiah was commissioned by God to be a prophet to his people. And then a prophet to the nations in Jeremiah chapter one, verse five, just a little sneak peek. Chapter 46, we're not going to get into it, but I just want to read it to you. The word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah, the prophet. Against. The nations. Why is that important? 
I want you to get this. I want you to get this. I need you to get this. When God speaks concerning the future of Jerusalem and Judah, does he tell the truth or does he lie? When he speaks to Baruch personally, does he tell the truth or does he lie? Now, when he's going to speak to the nations, what do you suppose that he's going to do? Do you think he's going to tell the truth or is he going to lie? Yeah, he's God. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man or like a human being that he should repent. God knows exactly what he's going to do. So the closing section is a prophetic survey to the nations. And Jeremiah will be given a worldwide vision of what God plans to do with the earth. But the assignment is not without pressure and it's not without dangers. Question. Did Jerusalem and Judah like the message that they were sinners and that they were inviting God's judgment? No. What do you think the nations are going to do when they hear about Jeremiah's message to them? Jeremiah is going to warn them that they're sinners. And he's going to warn the nations collectively that they face a day of judgment. But I need you to to get something else. It's not just a day of judgment, but in addition to the warning of judgment, there's an offer. And the offer is a wonderful hope to most of the nations. After the execution of judgment, there's a day that's going to come when the nations will be restored. And the promised restoration points to a day when Jesus Christ will come and he will set up God's kingdom on the earth. And in the closing chapters of Jeremiah, there's going to be a series of prophecies, instructions and warnings given to nine nations. I'm just going to tell you quickly. God's message to Egypt, judgment because of pride and brutality and idolatry. God's message to Gaza, that's Philistia, the utter and complete and guaranteed judgment. God's judgment to Moab, the reasons for judgment. God's message to the five nations, both near and far, a pronouncement of a coming judgment due to horrible sin. And then it's going to close with a message to Babylon. The same Babylon that God used as an instrument to discipline Jerusalem. He's now going to discipline it. But remember what we've already learned. That both Egypt and Babylon become a type. A picture of the world that lives its life apart from God. Apart from the fellowship of God and apart from the knowledge of God. Apart from relationship with God. And so the message to Babylon in part will be a picture of God's coming judgment upon the world for its evil and its brutality. And that's going to take place from chapter 50 all the way to chapter 51. And then we're going to have a final message to Babylon. The reasons why God must judge The entire world in the not too distant future. 
My advice? Read ahead. Go to chapter 46. Read. Find out how it's all going to end. So you can, here's what you can do. You can sort of set your spiritual DVR and say, record. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so many lessons need to be learned. But Lord, we pray that we would not be content to just simply learn the content of the information on the pages of the book of Jeremiah. Lord, we pray that we would allow the knowledge of God and the understanding of his character and his plans and his purposes to feed us. To grow the faith and the hope and the love that's inside of us. To a deeper appreciation of the sacrifice and the ministry of Jesus. And that Lord. We would take those moments of discouragement. And disappointment. When our mom, our dad, our brother, our sister, our family, our friends, our neighbors. Reject the message of hope. Reject the message of faith. Reject the message of love. Because, Lord, we know that apart from Jesus, there's no forgiveness of sin and there's no hope for eternal life. And so, Lord, we want to remind people that there is hope. There is forgiveness. There's a gracious restoration to wholeness and wellness when we place our confidence in the person of Jesus and we trust him for forgiveness and we trust him for eternal life. Lord, we know that you judged sin on Calvary's cross. And Lord, we know that there's a frightening judgment that still awaits a wicked world that seems committed. To rejecting you. But Lord we pray that we would redeem this time. Lord we pray that we would adopt the ministry of Jeremiah. That we would warn sinners to turn from their sin. But we would also remind them that a gracious, a loving, generous God has given us a provision in the person of Jesus. In Jesus name. Amen.